Hey everyone, thanks for joining us again. This is the Lost Words Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Abraham McCarthy, and it's a pleasure as always to have you join us to talk about life, success, race, equality, and everything in between. Last couple of episodes have been really fun, and I am back in the driver's seat with another guest. So today I've got a really interesting tale from a lovely lady. Her name is Hilda Wright. And again, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but it's a very interesting conversation we had. And what can I say? She's she's super inspiring. Uh, I think she's inspiring for anyone who's thinking about changing career, anyone that feels that they fit a mould, or anyone that just is like, I'm not sure what I want to do. Listen to Hilda's story. She'll inspire you and show you you should never limit yourself. you so much for jumping on board and getting involved and, and coming well coming down I was gonna say coming <laughs> down but coming online and being agreed to being interviewed um, I think it's important every story has a beginning middle and end and in life I suppose our stories keep on going until till that day in the future but let's look at the past first and then we'll come all the way up to okay. the present so if you would tell us a little bit about your background. Okay, so I am of Nigerian heritage. I came here when I was roughly six months to a year old. I have three siblings. There are quite a few of us. Um, we grew up in various parts of the UK. For some reason, we, we arrived in Scotland, moved down to Manchester, ended up in London, moved about five times uh, between my age of sort of eight and 18. Um, but the childhood was a typical sort of West African up- upbringing, all about education, striving, attainment, which is good in a way. A little bit of um, focus on emotions and mental health would have, wouldn't have gone amiss, but that, that's the way it is. Um, I went to a comprehensive school for my GCSEs and then I went to a private school for my A-levels. I went to university then subsequently and qualified as a lawyer roughly seven or eight years ago now. I have two kids and I'm happily married, well as happily as anyone can be really, and, um, <laughs> and here I am today. You know you're talking to me. <laughs> So that's that's a that's a fascinating background. There's lots of lots of stuff to unpick. <laughs> now, one of the funniest things you said to me when we were when we were chatting yeah. before was that there's controversy about how old you were when you came yeah. into this country. I find that strange. <laughs> Why is there any controversy? Surely there was a date that you arrived and. Uh- Absolutely, you'd think so. Well, I mean, I've asked my parents a few times. My dad seems to, well, no, to be fair, my dad has no idea. My mum seems to think it was six months. My brother seems to think it must have been a year because he was at such and such an age when he came over. So there's no consensus. I think those sort of details aren't really important to my parents. I think as long as everyone's well fed and gone to university, job done. (laughs) 
<laughs> I love that. I love the fact that people can't decide in your family when you guys arrived. Someone doesn't no. care. The other two are completely loggerheads. And you're like, well, it didn't matter, but it'd be kind Absolutely. of... Absolutely. <laughs> you said you came up to yeah. Scotland. Obviously, I live in Glasgow. Whereabouts, whereabouts in Scotland did you... We moved to Edinburgh, but we weren't there for very long. I recall a story from my mum. She There were only three of us at the time, so my younger sister hadn't been born. And the only thing she... Well, the most vivid thing was the cold. She said, departing from the plane, walking down those steps, she said, the biting cold. And she looked at my youngest brother. He was a baby in arms at the time. And she said, my son, what are we doing here? <laughs> That's all I can remember of, uh, of Scotland. And how long were you here for? Roughly a year, no longer than that. And then you couldn't take the cold and said, we're Ab- done. Absolutely. <laughs> We're going down it's, not, it's not nice, but it's probably exactly. Warmer. Yeah, I get that. When when I yeah. came here, I was a bit older yeah. than you, and um, my first impression isn't well. Like, my first impression isn't a memory. It truly is an impression, and it was an impression of deep, 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 deep confusion because okay. my ears were yeah. cold. Now, Sierra Leone, I never had cold ears, and at the age of three, I had never experienced cold ears I didn't know my ears could yeah. be cold and it was so cold it would hurt and I would be to my parents what is going on I am so confused I didn't know your ears could yeah. be cold but I didn't ever regard my ears until this moment <laughs> so that was that was my impression when I first yeah. came but we we suffered the cold yeah. so then you came you went down south we did we did mm-hmm. so we went through Manchester first and that's where my younger sister was born we again we were there for no more than sort of a year maybe two years and then progressively made our way down to London where we moved to quite a few locations within London always north never ventured south funnily enough but um yeah so we must have moved maybe every two years don't ask me why but then you eventually settled somewhere we did well when you say settled well no, not really I mean the longest place we stayed was an area called Potter's Bar in North London I think we we're there for maybe three or four years so if you call that settling then yeah absolutely was that anything to do with your parents jobs well my dad's a surgeon and my mum's an administrator so I suppose my dad can work anywhere um so it's not as if he was drafted to any particular location so I guess it was just I don't I don't know what they were searching for or moving towards but yeah yeah definitely down to them but not so much employment I wouldn't think they never said okay yeah. okay you just up you up sticks and yes. just went Though it nicely needs me to my next point. So growing up in an African yeah. household, I feel that, so people listening to this, a lot of people will not have grown up in an African household. I suspect the majority of people yeah. that listen to this weren't brought up in an African household. And as someone that was brought up in one, there's certain things that you maybe expect or take for yeah. granted that people don't do nowadays, yeah. especially, yeah. where... You say that you move every couple yeah. of years and people would probably ask, is that not a bit of upheaval for yeah. the children? That's not a question no in African households. No, no they're not no. interested. It's like, oh, I've got to leave my friends. Exactly. So, <laughs> <laughs> you make new Absolutely. friends. Absolutely. <laughs> Dumb question. What are you wasting exactly. my time? We'll get ready. Go. 
Absolutely. I think just um, conforming is the order of the day. I think essentially, there's one thing my father always used to say. He always used to say, is there no chief in your village? So that was always his answer for everything in the sense that whatever he says goes. So um, we were just used to towing the line, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and so when you, were, you started school, what were the people around you like? What type of area was it? Always very multicultural. So that was that made kind of assimilating much easier because you didn't really feel like you stood out too much. Um, and generally quite, I wouldn't say, some areas more well-off than others, but it, they were generally of a socioeconomic level let's say. So um, we weren't in any really hard up areas. Um, so you didn't have to contend with real issues at school sort of regarding, I don't know, safeguarding or sort of police presence or anything like that. Um, so yes, yeah, so childhood in, in that sense, in terms of the friends and the demographic, it was fairly smooth. And obviously you went off and did law and we talked, we touched briefly on the African household, but for a lot of families from Africa that moved here, education is one of the key pillars as a child. And obviously everyone's experience is slightly different, but as a child, it was very much education, 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 education. If you eat, okay, fine. But then education again. And, um, and almost to the exclusion of all other Absolutely. things, your, the fact that your father was yeah. a surgeon was a level of attainment expected yeah. almost innate yeah. for you and your your your, yeah, your siblings absolutely absolutely and that was communicated on a daily basis but not so much in a way to kind of cultivate an understanding behind this drive for education but just more communicated as if just so you know you need to attain or just so you know you need to succeed there was nothing padded or nurturing about it to sort of give you more of that motivation I think it was more the fear than um, (laughs) actually sort of having the full broader picture as actually education is important and I will thrive and I will aim to succeed because of ABC there was no list there was just the end goal and that's it so excellence as standard. standard yeah and and looking back did you feel that pressure at all or with your friends with your amongst your your brothers and sisters I think there was a, a slight level of competition we always knew how our brothers and sisters were faring educationally because the, the, uh, my parents make it very sort of public oh look your brother's done this your brother's achieved this look at you this is what you've not done this is what you need to do so um, we're all very aware of kind of where each other was. There was that pressure and competition in that sense. Um, although we're all close now, which is lovely. I don't know how that happened, but we're all close now. Um, in terms of friends, I think because we stayed within a demographic that generally had the same aims and ethos anyway, um, I was amongst cohorts that wanted to thrive, wanted to succeed. So there was the general air was, you know, we all sort of breathed the same kind of mantra, so to speak. Um, yeah, but yeah, but in terms of pressure, yeah, always there, always from a young age. 
and being expected to succeed and being black and female yeah. did that at a younger age kind of in your teens maybe from the age of 12 upwards was that was that i don't want to say highlighted that's not what i mean what am oh. i trying to say you're being expected to succeed being female and being african was there a different yardstick for you versus your brothers thinking about it I don't think there was because there was never a conversation or indication from my parents that you can't do this or you can't go into this line of work or you know this sort of area is reserved for males and this for females not so much so you're both you were everyone was equally empowered and I imagine at school there Mm. wasn't that there wasn't that disparity between the male and the female and what could be achieved either no, exactly, exactly. And like uh, like we discussed um, last week, because I went to an all-girls private school, you're not then faced immediately with the limitations of, I don't know, the boys going off to do woodwork and the girls going off to do knitting or whatever it is that girls are supposed to enjoy doing. And um, so, you know, the arena was very much open to us as females in terms of any subject we want to do or tap into. It's all very much available. So... So, yeah, so in terms of kind of a patriarchal sort of misogynistic society limitations, that really wasn't present um, in my education. So that was really beneficial. And one of the things you said that when you went to university, you didn't feel that either. You felt you could go to university unperturbed, unburdened oh, and just yeah. get on with it. Was that, is that yeah. fair? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think if I recall correctly, majority of the um, law students were female. Really? Okay. So um, yeah. And I think that's that. I think that's encouraging, especially mm. in the recent few, the last couple of weeks, we've had a couple of stories about more example of, of misogynism in institutions, mm. and so mm. we know that this is not an issue that has seen that the that's that's been buried or been put to rest mm-hmm. at all and mm-hmm. it still affects people and obviously everyone has different experiences and Absolutely. and the thing is just because you've had a positive experience doesn't mean that yeah. everyone's experience is positive and doesn't mean that that's it over it's like oh yeah great well this yeah. experience was great we're done we're finished right? <laughs> exactly. okay. sexism is over right send, yes. like, send, send a letter out to everyone so they know <laughs> um, it yeah. doesn't work quite like that yeah exactly question about going back to African households it just yeah. it, it strikes me so the majority of people that I speak to have grown up in an African household and this kind of education, 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 education. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's, be, I, this is completely off, a bit off topic actually, but okay. do you think it's because education is seen as the gateway to the middle class? Do you think that's why education is pushed down the throats of African children so much? Mm-hmm. Because it's one of the quickest ways mm-hmm. to assimilate, it's the quickest way for a lot of people to climb that social ladder mm. and maybe there's that unconscious zeitgeist within our African parents of a certain generation to mm. push that the whole way through. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I, I tend to agree. I think it is all about creating access routes and options. And of course, education leads to hopefully the better jobs. And then with that comes connections, power, and ultimately money. And because I, I, I don't know your thoughts on this, but generally there's a restricted route or restricted number of careers which are deemed 
relevant or necessary or important or impressive to African families. And it is the lawyer, the doctor, perhaps the accountant. <laughs> Um, and I think that's about it. I think um, West Africans in particular don't think they need anything else. Um, it, it, because nobody was talking about let's be an artist. Yeah. Nobody was saying, okay, how about you become even a nurse? We were talking about the medical field. No one's talking about nurses. Um, so it's all very narrow. And some of it, I think, has got a lot to do with... Um, well, so not so much optics, but the sense of elitism as well. Um, so, so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. It is true. And I think as well as not just an African thing or West mm. African thing, I mean, and mm. a lot of friends who are Indian descent talk mm. about the same the same issue saying, oh, you don't need to be a doctor or a lawyer. Mm. An engineer is usually yeah. acceptable. Absolutely. Quite often the teacher's fine. Yes. Um, but anything else, you know, you need to have a look at your life and maybe, maybe you're just a bad child. And, yeah. and, and everything else isn't acceptable. Why would you ever consider, do you want to be a builder? Why? Why do you want to be a builder? Exactly. Gonna build. exactly. I can build, build these rocks. Come on. <laughs> Go be a lawyer. And it's, exactly. It's, and I think obviously there's a lot of pressure on on kids. I felt even growing up that there was quite a lot of pressure to always perform. And I um, I wasn't as good at conforming as most people. Um, okay. I've got a big mouth, right? And I'm stubborn, so right. of course I am. Um, I was disciplined regularly. Yeah. And, um, and this was that's that's a story for another time or many stories for other times, but <laughs> I think if you if you if you are a bit more strong-headed and you are more strong-willed, you will come across as being just that difficult kid and and yes. more likely to just be pushed aside and said, right, fine, you're a lost cause or yes. your own thing. Yes. I think I was a bit fortunate that I got I was good at school that I didn't have to try, so I could be pugnacious and nobody made okay. too big a deal of it. Okay. Um, but. You finish university, yeah, and you got your lovely law degree, mm-hmm. and you're feeling like a million bucks. <laughs> what day one? What are you thinking? You're like, okay, what's my life gonna look like? What What did you think back then? Take us back to to, to what year was it you passed? Oh, so law degree. It's a law degree or training contract. So when I qualified as a lawyer, or when I finished my law degree. Let's see, uh, as only qualified as a lawyer. Um, so that was 2013, I believe. I need to check these dates. But uh, I think roughly 2013. Almost 10 years ago. Take us back yeah, 10 years ago. Yeah. That day you finished, you went, yes, I'm a lawyer. Can Absolutely. you put the plaque on? Blah, 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 blah. What, what, was, your, what was your vision for yourself then? Because I already had my young son at the time, it wasn't very much, let's now climb the corporate ladder and make obscene amounts of money and just shout from the rooftops. It was very much, how can I incorporate the the hard work that encompassed sort of attaining this, uh, um, the um, sort of the lawyership um, with being a good mum. So I was very much limited in terms of the direction that I could take now that, you know, I'd qualified as a lawyer. 
Um, so I was balancing kind of juggling ideas of sort of part-time um, roles and there were few and far between. Um, and I'd need a part-time role, which would allow me to drop my son in the morning and pick him up at three o'clock. And I don't actually think that exists. So I'm looking for a hobby, essentially, not really a part-time <laughs> role. Um, so that's when I thought, I may not actually be able to practice at all. And actually that didn't seem too daunting because he was so much my priority. Um, I was happy to put my sort of legal profession to the side, to be honest. Do you think many professional women, not just professional women, I suppose mm. working women in general, mm. feel mm. that that pull between mm. having to be a parent, having to be a mother mm. and mm. and having to to work or to... Um, to service their profession and 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 did you chat to your friends about it at the time or your family um not really I kind of made that decision by myself it was autonomous it's just just an innate call my son comes first how do I facilitate still being a good mother and also I like to do something so I couldn't just sit at home and stare at him and watch him grow. I did want to do something. Um, but yeah, to your point about, do I think that mothers have that sort of internal war? Then absolutely. Well, I mean, most mothers, I'm, I don't know, maybe some mothers don't care. I don't, I don't know, but generally speaking, I would suspect that lots of mothers think, how am I going to make this work? How am I going to be a great mom and a great career woman as well? Why do you think that's not distilled on men at all? Well, maybe it is distilled, but it doesn't seem to be as bad. I mean, I think there's a term, and I'm going to remember at some point, but that is it career guilt or something guilt um, that women seem to be afflicted with much more than men. Men seem to be, yeah, I've got kids, but I'm still going to. Do you think that that probably just stems back from the past where traditional traditional yes. family setup where it's okay yeah. for the man to go work and miss absolutely. all the milestones but the woman expects yeah. to stay at home absolutely absolutely it's the patriarchal structure in its sort of finest form really i think um there's no assumption that the man's going to stay at home and you know raise the children and forego his career i mean it, the, we didn't even have a conversation about it my husband and i it's very much expected i mean luckily i i was fully on board with knowing that look this is this my son is my primary responsibility and i guess my husband thought well you know now he has a bigger family so he his responsibility is kind of manifested in a different way you know to ensure that he provides and you know creates and retains sort of you know a stable unit um but yeah there's there's seldom I know this from lots of friends there's no discussion as to um what a woman's going to do once the child comes it's just it's assumed it really is but let's let's flick it on its head let's spin it around a little bit so you're I mean your job your your job your husband's got quite a good job yeah um, let's let's pretend mm. your husband let's pretend his job wasn't so celebrious let's say he didn't have a set career path mm. um he wasn't necessarily skilled mm. and you had your profession as a lawyer mm. what do you think that conversation would have been like and would you have been as quick to have dismissed or not dismissed your career? That's unfair. But would yeah. you have been so quick to to be able to leave it behind? Oh, I think that's a really interesting question. And the answer is I honestly don't know. 
because it wouldn't just be to leave my career. It would be then to to almost deprive the family of the sort of financial stability such a wage would bring. Um, so, yeah, it'd be far more sort of complex, that scenario, definitely. I don't know. But then I'd still, would I still feel that love for my son and for me to want to be the primary carer? Yeah, I'm hoping I would. So, yeah, that's, that's a difficult one. I don't know is the honest answer. And I suppose you're in a position where you, that that decision, you said there wasn't really a conversation, it happened and no. you were more than happy with it. In fact, yeah. that was what you wanted, not that yeah. you're more than happy with it. Mm. But I suppose in so many households, and now we've talked about equality from a, yeah. from a male-female perspective and talked yeah. about women being in roles of power, women be, doing what they want to do yeah. and having a family is part yeah. of that quite rightly yeah. so but if yeah. we have more women doing what they want to do in rules mm. of power and positions of power mm. earning more mm. you're gonna have that that original structure we talked about flipped on its head more often and i wonder yeah. what's going to happen i wonder if we're going to see more men taking the back seat and having the mm. women doing saying right okay i'm i'm the main breadwinner mm. i'm gonna go out there i'm gonna go kill it you stay at home, you be the primary caregiver. And yeah. and I wonder if that will push that change more than anything else, just because you've got a whole heap of people who in the past have been subdued. Yes. If you've got 50% of the, the population been told for hundreds of years, you can only do so many things. All of a sudden, mm. hello, we've got a workforce oh. that's much more powerful than it used to be. Yeah, someone still needs to help out with the children. Someone still yeah. needs to be providing things at home, and it can't be the person. Well, it can be. But mm. Can it be the person who has the better career, who's career focused, and is like, look, mm. if if I were a man, this wouldn't be a conversation. So why should it Absolutely. be a conversation when yeah. I'm a female? Yeah, yeah, I know. Interesting question. I think I suppose biology comes into it as well. If you're talking about, especially the first year, you're talking about things like breastfeeding and things that kind of the, the mum tends to need to be there in a way but of course there's still ways around that but um yeah yeah no absolutely so I think those that hold the power structures if they were more representative of you know the standard uh, uh of, of female so to speak then then yeah then you're hoping that you know they'd be able to sort of command some sort of change in what what is expected or what society kind of um, proliferates. Um, so that would help you know just women who do want to um, carry on with their careers and actually help men that actually maybe more men would love to stay at home and be the primary carer. But because you know work's just not structured that way, society is not really structured that way. But yeah, everybody just kind of toes the line and and falls into place so to speak and yeah precisely. you know we yeah. and i wonder if some more if more men would be up for that um, mm. i just wonder from a male perspective if there's a lot of um, pressure on men to be mm. the breadwinner and to be seen mm. doing mm. the manly thing and taking care mm. of your family and and that mm. means literally earning enough that mm. if your partner wants to work she can if she doesn't mm. need to she doesn't need to mm. um so that's a whole other debate isn't it mm, it is so you've you qualified you realized yeah. i want to be the primary caregiver but i'm not just going to stare at my son as he grows up i want to do yeah. something i need to engage my brain i need to yes. engage my 
energy. I've got enough energy to do both. What am I going to yeah. go do? So what did yeah. you do? <laughs> um, we discussed this briefly, didn't we? I said that I loved going to all these children's classes and um, sort of engaging with not just my son in different environments, but also other children as well. So I thought maybe I can do something along the lines with children because then that also gives me the flexibility um, that I would need as a mother and a wife as well. Um, so I set up a children's entertainment business and I started that from scratch. Um, so that just involved children's kind of music, dance and explore classes in the local area and then that slowly evolved to then um, providing parties as well because I got lots of feedback from the attendees who said oh I'd love this in a party format would you do that so it's really quite evolutionary uh, in its form and um, so yeah they started parties as well and they were quite lucrative which was good uh, so they, they very much weren't sort of part of the initial plan um, and then so I did that for four years and then just fell out of love with it I don't know why maybe because it was taking a lot of time on the weekends um, and the kids were growing up, so they needed me on the weekends as well. Um, yes, and then I sold it um, four years later, which I was, and that wasn't part of the plan either. In fact, I didn't know what the exit plan was, to be honest. <laughs> but um, so, but that, was, that was a nice kind of, um, you know, kind of uh, nice way to sort of terminate the whole, the whole sort of business. What was it called? It was called Mini Maniacs. Mini Maniacs. Is the company still going today? As far as I know, yeah. Okay. So let's talk about owning a business. Yeah. That's always fun. (laughs) (laughs) Small business owner. Yeah. Um, How did you find that, juggling being a business owner with being um, a parent? Obviously, lots of people do it. A lot of people... Yeah, I don't, I don't think we talk enough about it, especially no. starting a business from scratch. Yes. Well, the, the early days, what was that like? That was intense and it was scary. It was hectic. It was so involved and lots of it was uncharted. Um, so I plowed a lot of energy into it because, as you may have gathered, I like to succeed. Mm-hmm. So and for me, working hard is just, it comes as a given. I am happy to toil. I will do that. Um, so I invested actually a lot more time than I thought I would need to, to make sure that it was was um, sound in terms of its delivery and its formation, um, its structures. Um, so taking things like advertising, marketing, and creating the classes myself, um, sourcing the um, sort of the supplies and the props and everything. So that was all down to me. So I put a lot on my shoulders, more than I thought I would need to. I didn't really know when I first started what was involved. It just seemed like a good idea. Um, I think that is the thing with business. People talk about the many hats you wear as a business owner, and it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, you've got yeah. the the lovely hats that people see, and you're like, oh, you're the owner of the business. Like, oh, yeah, that mm. sounds fantastic. But what people don't realize is if you've got any staff, you're also yeah. payroll, and then you yes. become HR. Yes. And then you also become the marketing director and the strategist yeah. and the branding director. And yeah. and if you wrote all the things that you did down, you would be, oh, wow, um, I probably should start doing these things and stop writing them down because it's so many. Yes. <laughs> it, 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 it is a lot. Type of thing. Do you think you'd have done it if you knew how much energy would have been involved? If I had known it would have been a success, then yes. 
So if I'd known about the input necessary, but also knowing it'd been an absolute failure, then definitely not. But knowing the rewards, then yeah, absolutely. And you said you grew this company to add about 14, 15 members of staff? Yeah, exactly. And you enjoyed working with them all the time. And how was that managing people? Because anyone that manages people know that people make and break businesses and make and break your mind. Yes, no, absolutely. It's interesting dealing with people, with human beings. Um, Most of the time, it was pleasant and straightforward. But then, of course, you know, people being people, you know, you're not always going to get on. You're not always going to have the reliability that perhaps you would put in um, if you were, uh, you know, an employee. I think I expect from people only what I'm prepared to give. So, for instance, if you're due to be at a party on a particular day, I expect you to turn up. The idea that someone just wouldn't turn up for work is just beyond me. Mm-hmm. So I had to kind of, so it's eye-opening as well. So, um, yeah, so I had to contend with sort of standard issues that any boss would have to contend with. Yeah, the frustrations of other staff. Yeah. And I suppose it's always dangerous where one of my managers says to me, remember, people aren't you. That, yes. which is a good thing and a bad thing I've come to find yeah. because if everyone was like right. me it'd be horrible the, the business would cr- all the businesses would crumble right in a, in a heartbeat because if everyone had the same skill set as I did it'd be rubbish yeah. so you want to have those complementary skill sets yeah I suppose the issue is if you've got a particular thing a particular area so if you're if you're a grafter things come mm. to you naturally and if mm. they don't come to other people naturally and they need mm. to be doing those things it, it's that mm. frustration between the yes. two it's so annoying yes yeah, definitely, definitely. Especially when you can't really understand why somebody wouldn't want to work hard, why somebody wouldn't want to be punctual, or why somebody wouldn't want to, like you say, be a grafter. I, there are lots of things that I don't fathom in other people that I see in myself, rightly or wrongly, I think. And I hope I don't come across as judgmental, but, but like I said, I wouldn't expect anything of anybody else that I wouldn't be prepared to do myself. But then still, maybe that's too high a standard to just inflict on everybody because people are coming from different backgrounds, different experiences, different strengths, skill sets. And I think it taught me to be a bit more mindful of other people's experiences and limitations, perhaps. Yeah, I suspect that's literally what most managers go through in that process between starting your career in management no matter what it is with you own your own company or if you are taking into a managerial position especially if you were mm. a junior at any point realizing mm. okay i'm managing people and going mm. through that frustration of going you're all idiots yes. or if you're in a position where everyone else actually are if they excel going i'm an idiot because yeah ev- because there's always an idiot in the team <laughs> and it's either everyone else or it's you and, and you've got to get and work out right okay um am i happy being the idiot and I, yes I, I'm, I'm happy being the idiot because i know like, I, I say this to people all the time there's only room for one b player in the organization and it's got to be me and it has right. to be, everyone else has to be better than me otherwise there's yeah. no point um, yeah and i need to be the idiot um <laughs> and that but you do you become more mindful don't you you become a bit more patient and yes. you learn how the things that don't matter to you have to yeah. matter to you because the things that people deal with and and their feelings are valid yes yes yeah no absolutely so I think you have to bring all your skills to bear when dealing with especially an array of people um yeah you have to kind of just 
be kind of cognizant about how to just communicate with people. I think relate to people. And I think that's for um, for any boss, really. It's just you have to kind of be understanding of your workforce, but without being a doormat. Yeah, yeah, massively. It's very easy yeah. to become that as well. Well, depends yeah. on your personality. Yeah. Um, imagine yeah. some people a bit more so, but uh, yeah, it really depends on your personality, mm. doesn't it? Mm. So you said you had no exit plan. How did no. the sell- selling of the business come o- come across? I'm going to add a little tidbit here because I think in America, people are really good at selling companies and selling assets. Well, here in Britain, we don't seem to be quite as good as selling stuff. I've spoken to many business owners who have said, I'm just going to wrap it up. And yeah. I'd say, why? And they said, well, because what else am I going to do? And I said, why don't yeah. you sell it? And they'll go, because who would buy it? And then I'd say, yeah. Is it making money? Yes, I make quite a lot of money yeah. from it. Right, okay. Yeah. So you have an asset here, yeah. yeah. So what do you mean who would buy it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyone that wants to make some money, do what you've done. If you've got systems in place, why yes. you not buy it? So how did the how did the, the sale come about of this? Um, I think it was quite accidental, actually. I did get to the point where I felt that I'd sort of fallen out of love with it a little bit. It began to be more of a, a draw and um, I became dispassionate about it and that's what I don't like if I'm doing something I'm giving it a hundred percent so when I start feeling like I can take shortcuts and things don't matter I really don't want to be there so that's why I thought okay let's just wrap it up just like you said um, then I spoke to a friend she's a serial entrepreneur she said well just sell the business just like you you said um, so I thought I guess that I looked into it again I had my hesitations reservations thinking who's going to want to buy this and because I think I set it up from scratch it's very much about me and my identity my stamp was on it I was thinking well, I don't know if anyone's going to be able to execute it the same way that I will and she said well that doesn't matter it's, that's their problem <laughs> if they see it as something viable they'll buy it and then they'll just work it out so yeah so it was upon good advice so I thought well actually you know let, let's see nothing nothing to lose if no one buys it then so be it the least I would have you know I would have tried um so yeah so I yeah and then it just worked out well I had a, not a lot of interest but a little bit of interest and that's all you need you only need one buyer anyway exactly you don't need multiple buyers just one no. buyer and that's it yeah, yeah. as long as the offer is oh. right and you feel that they do do justice to yeah. you to, to yeah. your company to your legacy yeah. then there's no yeah. problem with that yeah absolutely so you sold uh, mini mini acts yeah. And you had a nice big water cash. And you thought, I'm <laughs> going to go off to Barbados and I'm going to spend the rest of my life living on a beach. No? If only. If only. Uh, okay. So what did you do instead? I bought my son a piano. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that makes perfect sense, yeah? Yes, absolutely. Um, the rest were put into savings with a small portion in reserve for my next venture which was me thinking because as you know I can't just sit on my hands and just watch life so I thought okay so that's that's sorted now what else can I do and even my husband was saying don't just sit back and enjoy what you've achieved I said, achieve that's that's yesterday that's been a, that's gone what are we doing now what's happening today classic overachiever where you don't take a you don't take a bow for what you've done it no. was well, that's yesterday's news i don't know why yeah. you even talked to me about it You're exactly my time what absolutely what are you talking about yeah i saw that company that was last week what, what, why are you still talking about it 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, in terms of moving forward, I thought, well, what else am I interested in? And uh, I think we, we discussed this last week as well, but I was really into, because of my kids, actually, I was really into natural products, herbalism, skincare, hair care. Um, so I thought, well, could I monetize this at all? And I thought, well, let's give it a try. So I started my own organic handmade uh, skincare and hair care business. And that was called Scrummy You. And again, I used my skills from uh, Mini Maniacs in terms of marketing, branding, advertising, although different sectors, so that was good. So that kept, that was a new challenge, which I love. Um, and I started that and that ran for a year and a half. That was fairly successful. Um, it's a very different and difficult market to break into the skincare market and hair care, oversaturated. And being a sort of a, a small fish in a huge pond, you know, unless you're selling huge volumes to be a success, I think, you know, um, that would have been difficult anyway. But I thought I'd, I'd give it a try. And, you know, and it was fairly successful. Nothing to sort of write home about. But it was, you know, it was fine. It kept me out of trouble as well anyway. That's all you need. Uh, was it yes, niche, exactly. Did you niche your, your um, products or were they for the whole market? It was niche in the terms. It was very much for dry skin. I tried to market it towards children. And because it was herbalist in nature... Um, so preservative free, additive free. So then, yeah, I would say that it was quite niche in, in that sense. It's funny because, I mean, that type of thing now is the norm. Yes. So maybe a few years ago, to have those type of words against it, people would go, oh, that's a bit more niche now. That is, is minimum. We'd expect yeah. that. And if people thought it wasn't that, they're less likely to buy your product than buying yeah, it because absolutely. it is it. Um, it's interesting how trends change in the zeitgeist, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And then Scrummy You, did you sell this one or did you wrap this one up? This one I wrapped up um, because I was given, I was approached by one of my really good friends. She had just acquired her own um, dental practice and she asked me whether I could be her practice manager. Um, I think because Scrummy You, <clears throat> excuse me, wasn't as uh, developed as mini maniacs i didn't really have systems in place so to speak i had enough for me to run it but in terms of um sort of trying to sell it as an asset i didn't feel it was quite there to be honest and it was quite simple to wrap it up and i hadn't spent too much in terms of investment or capital and um, sort of get it going anyway so i so quite happily kind of wrapped that up um and yes and then i proceeded to assist my friend as a practice manager and I did that for about a year and a half, two years. And I think I remember saying to you last week that um, I realised quickly that actually I don't like working with people. So um, <laughs> <laughs> when you say people, do you mean the public or do you mean other, other people on a day-to-day basis? I think other people on a day-to-day basis, from, uh, from time to time, the public as well. There's some interesting characters out there. Um, <laughs> but more within a team, because I think one of the reasons why I jumped to be her practice manager was because I had worked by myself for so long um, with Mini Maniacs. Although I had a, you know, a staff base of 14, 15 people, it's still very much everything was just me. And I was, you know, like you said, I wore all those hats and I wore them all just, you know, autonomously, just, you know, in isolation, so to speak. And even more also with Scrummy You, I didn't have any staff. So I jumped at the chance of working with a team. And that was great for about a year and a half, two years. But then, yes, after that, just the politics and the drama. 
Yeah, dental practices are famed for politics and drama, and every yes. practice is a bit different, and um, yeah. it can be it can suck you in quite a lot. Yeah, um, and being the practice manager, you're the go-to for all headaches. Absolutely, whether they require attention or deserve attention or not, people just use you as a a crutch, so to speak, which is fine. But then on a daily basis, it just I just thought it was it was a lot to handle um and because I didn't have any dental experience although my friend assured me you don't really need dental experience but I think that industry knowledge really is crucial if you want to really propel the business and she was a really good friend as well so I think she deserved more so um, I actually sourced the um, replacement for myself and I helped her with the interviewing and the person that replaced me was, she was phenomenal. So yeah, so it was quite right that I stood down, to be honest, I was holding the pool and back. So, um, so yeah, so I sort of bowed out gracefully. And, uh, that was very nice. That's very, that was quite noble of you to <laughs> say, right, okay, I'm going to leave, but I'm not only not going to leave you in the lurch, I'm going to, I'm going to actively bring someone who's better than me this kind of goes back to this whole thing where either you're everyone else is an idiot or you're the idiot yes and so you're going to get someone better than me so I'm the idiot yeah absolutely and and you're going to see why it should have been her and that yes I I need to go because absolutely (laughs) absolutely to be able to admit that to themselves and then to humble yourself enough to to do that and I am yeah it takes a certain type of person and also i think a certain amount of experience to be able to remove ego out of it and say because it's quite easy to say do you know it's not for me don't want it and then leave but what you did was very much get someone else in who could be who could move the business forward and and was better than you with those particular sets um, and that that particular skill set and and that 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 i say it's a very noble thing Thank you. I think one of the main driving forces, other than like you say, I think it's just a, it's a, that's how I would want to be treated, definitely. But other than that, this was one of my best friends. It was her practice. She'd invested hundreds and thousands in this. There was no way that I was going to be the cause of any detriment to her. So I felt very much compelled to sort of do all I could for her, whether it's being there or leaving there. I, I always had to sort of put her first in that sense so you fulfilled your obligation at the dental practice yeah. and then you moved to Barbados and chilled on the beach now <laughs> and I'm waiting for you to say that you, you stopped working and you chilled out and the kids are old enough that you can at least have a few hours in the day and you did nothing right tell me that's what you're doing now nothing never of course not <laughs> So actually, my exit from the practice coincided with the whole George Floyd event. And I thought I need to do something for my community. Um, and, the, and actually, and the, for the first time, because this was maybe about seven years on, I hadn't even thought about my um, law degree. I hadn't thought about the fact I was a qualified lawyer. Because I was saying to my husband, well, what can I do now? I think I've exhausted all my skills and interests. And um, <clears throat> it was actually my accountant, who's a really great guy and also a friend of mine. He said, you, I didn't realise you were a qualified lawyer. Are you ever going to go back to it? Oh, no, that was in the past. I don't know if it's going to work. To be fair, why would um, you assume you were a lawyer? You've got, I <laughs> think, well, <laughs> based on that resume, why would anyone think, oh, yeah, she's a lawyer as well? 
That's true. That's true. That's true. Um, so yeah. So obviously through sort of disclosure to him. Um, but yeah. So if funnily enough, he was the one that said, actually, you know, go back into it, and he said it on a few occasions to the point where something started. To, the seed was planted, so to speak. Oh, could I? Could I be brave enough? Because this is a complex area. It's not. I have this this abject fear of failure so unless it's something that I I kind of feel I can manage I can do you know I've, I'm really nervous about you know about sort of really big decisions um but yeah I spoke it over with my husband and he helped me initially we did lots of research as to whether I can practice by myself because I remember one of the restraints was going into a law practice and then just never see my children again um so all the stars seem to align in terms of now very recently the law society allowed freelance listers so I could work from home I could work independently so I thought let's do this and how else what a great way to be able to assist my community because we're very much underrepresented um, as lawyers anyway but then in terms of access to legal advice and services it's really dependent on finances and your sort of your wealth and you know um, your your sort of socioeconomic standing as well so if I can you know reach out to my community give free advice or discounted advice absolutely so um so what type of law do you practice and what type of people do you work with at the moment? So it's general practice, uh, predominantly in private client work, but then it's slowly branched out into housing and family law. Um, and that's where I find I meet my community most with sort of housing and possession issues and fam- sadly family law issues with divorce and um, child arrangement orders and things like that. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but yes, yeah, so, but I meet a array of um, of people, of clients, um, of different backgrounds. But predominantly, my clients are black, and that's not through. I suppose mainly I sort of advertise on black websites, but not that I even sort of um, advertise that much. But um, through word of mouth and referral, I guess. We, all, we tend to move in our own sort of community groups. So one client recommend me to their sister and then recommend to the cousin. So my clients tend to be black anyway. So like I say, not intentionally, but um, yeah, that, that tends to be my client base. Okay. And obviously this is, you feel like you're given back to the community and you say that you'd mentioned that you're given discounted rates and... Mm. Do, I imagine you're quite busy at the moment. I am. I am. In a good way. Although my problem, as you may have guessed, I, I don't like leaving things. I won't, I don't like doing a shabby job. So if somebody comes to me and they've only got, I don't know, a hundred pounds and the housing issue, which will actually cost me, I don't know, 900 pounds ordinarily, I'd still give them that 900 pound service. Um, and that means sort of working that bit longer and, um, you know, investing that much more time and energy and sort of an emotion as well. I, I, for my clients, I, I'm not withdrawn. I'm very much invested in their issues, in their matters. It's all for one, one for all. We're in this together. So, um, so, so yeah, that's, that's just kind of how I, how I operate. And obviously not, 
you you started this in 2020 so that was in the middle of the pandemic mm. yeah so you wouldn't have been doing it prior to that but i imagine no. you'd have had friends or you know colleagues or or pre- maybe previous classmates who did this type of thing over the last few years how has that mm. landscape changed you were saying that you're dealing with people that you didn't necessarily from different walks of life from different strata of life mm. and how has the pandemic affected people what are the things that people are worried about now? What are their What are the concerns? In terms of legally, or just generally? Well, just well, yeah, legally, the things that they're coming to you with, and 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 the the problems that you're helped to facilitate. I think because I started, like you say, mid uh, what a was it mid pandemic? Yeah, mid pandemic. I can't really attest to what people's sort of legal issues were before then. Um, but I would say most definitely it would be an increase in housing issues, more repossessions, um, family issues as well. The divorce rate has gone up by something ridiculous, like 300%. So increase in domestic violence. So sadly, all sort of the negative connotations of, you know, of an, an extreme, um, well, a pandemic, and you know, you'd you'd expect that to kind of manifest itself in sort of people's um, daily lives and and their setups and their ability to cope with each other, um, their ability to pay their bills and their rent. So, so yes, yeah, so the law kind of permeates all you know every facet of our lives. So sadly, you know, yeah, the connotations have been really negative. And you was getting insight into people's daily lives because of your job mm. do you see any sign of it slowing down do you see people do you see things improving or are we still in the middle of the repercussions i think i mean lots of um economists say that this is going to affect generations so i mean without having to, you know access to the the real research and, you know, um, I would say from my standpoint that we're just seeing the kind of the knock-on effect, the initial stages of the ramifications of the pandemic when it comes to sort of legal claims and legal matters. And because the law's now reverting in terms of um, all the safeguards it had in place for people who are unable to pay their rent, for example, during the pandemic um, and um, sort of financial support the, uh, the government gave to people regarding businesses. So all that's being peeled back now. So people are effectively kind of left to sink or swim. So that's when you see the extent of the need um, that the pandemic's created. So in terms of how long, who knows? And I suppose what type of advice would you give people who are kind of in that, obviously we've got ebb and peaks and troughs, and Mm. if they're kind of in a bit of a trough just now, what Mm. advice would you give them? I mean, as someone who started a couple of own businesses and worked for other people and then go back to own business, Mm-hmm. What advice would you give with people who are maybe at a crossroads and thinking about changing what they're doing mm-hmm. from your personal experience rather than sorry, mm-hmm. from a legal standpoint? Yeah, I think personally, the only advice I could give is make sure you conduct your research thoroughly in terms of what type of business area you want to specialise or go into. You've got to now be more cognizant of what is sort of, not so much economic proof, but you've got to you've got to 
be aware of how fluid can this business be? How robust can it be when the economic climate changes and when grants are no longer there? Um, I think it's just all about doing your due diligence, really. I think the era of just taking a punt, I, I think perhaps that's gone. But then that's, that's, just, that's just me. Okay. No, that's, I mean, that's sound mm. advice from your experiences. So it makes, mm. that makes perfect sense. And your legal firm at the moment, is it just you? Yes. Do you want it to keep it that way? Uh, good question. My husband asked me the same thing. I think for now, very much just me because it's my baby and I'm nurturing it. I'm nurturing it and I'm kind of growing it in the direction that I see fit. And I don't know if I can take on anybody else that would have that same ethos. Um, in terms of, you know, if a client can't pay, you know, I'd want someone to be very much sort of, sort of ethical in their approach and not sort of money grabbing in that sense. Um, so I don't know if you can build a stronger business on that where you're just working for free. I don't, <laughs> I don't think that's the best business structure. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, and dare I ask the name of it because if people listen to this and in their positions and the, mm-hmm. or there's any things that come up mm-hmm. um, it sounds like you're already quite busy and yeah. you're not necessarily touting for business at all but what is the no. name of the, the law firm? It's called HW Legal HW Legal yeah. so sorry if you get a flood of calls after this <laughs> and people start right. asking you for more more work and then you have to hire someone and you've got to <laughs> create a company that doesn't make any money <laughs> exactly <laughs> you can blame me for that one i'll, I'll, I'll i will take the blame for it <laughs> so what what does the future hold what, what what are you thinking what do you want to be doing when are you moving to Barbados and spending time <laughs> i really think you need to go i think you need to go spend some time on and have some holidays <laughs> Yeah. holidays sound wonderful. I think we're trying to um, get that in the diary, definitely. But in terms of the future, I think I'm very much going to see how far I can take HW Legal. Will we expand if I can get the right team with the right mindset and, you know, unashamed to say kind of a community focus, um, then, yeah, I think uh, that would be something that would be really beneficial and um yeah, and something promising if, if we could expand, definitely, so we can really make some inroads and support our community. And, of course, hopefully pay people as well. That's secondary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So much for coming on today. Um, You're welcome. And it's been a pleasure chatting to you. It's been fun. Well, good. And it's, it's good to see that you're back in law or to hear that you eventually go back to law. Yes. Trained as a lawyer and then decided to do yeah. everything but and then eventually exactly. I'll go back to law. You got there eventually. I and did. That, oh yeah, always just yeah. You knew you're a good one, um, <laughs> and we um we'll keep an eye on on the law firm and see how things grow. I suspect it's going to go quicker than you than you plan it to, um, okay. especially with your work ethos and your work ethic and and um, I think you'll you'll benefit lots of people in the community and I think you'll do a great job. Oh, thank you. I hope so. <laughs> that was Hilda Wright, lawyer, mum, businesswoman, inspiration. I just want to thank everyone for listening as we wrap up this latest episode. But what I want you to do before we finish up, I want you to like and subscribe. 
If you can, I'd love it if you'd leave me a review to tell us how you're doing. It doesn't have to be five star, but obviously we'd prefer a five star review. And yeah, like and subscribe and we will see you next week. Thank you so much. Stay blessed.